So if you're just joining us, we are doing something a little bit different this year. We are going through the entire story of the Bible in 11 months. We started this at the beginning of February. We're calling this the whole story. And so we've broken down the story of the Bible into 14 different series. And we are currently in series two right now. And so we finished the first one a few weeks ago. We're in series two. And I'm so excited about this. We've got to average 3.2 messages per series to get there. And we're ahead of schedule. We're .2 ahead of schedule right now, and I'm really, really excited. I'm not, the, I'm not a, a ahead of schedule kind of person. I'm never ahead of schedule, so the fact that we're here right now, I'll take it. Really excited about it, and last week we kicked off series two, which is called Broken Homes. And here's kind of the basic idea. When you get to about Genesis chapter 12, the second half of the book of Genesis is all about this family. It's this family over multiple generations that God chooses. He handpicks them to be his representatives on the earth. He says, I'm gonna use you, I'm gonna promise things to you, I'm gonna give you descendants, I'm gonna make you into a nation, I'm gonna give you land, and you're going to be the ones who are gonna represent me to the world, and I'm actually going to bless the entire earth through you, which ultimately happens through Jesus. That's like the climax of that promise. And you would think that if God's gonna handpick one family, that he's gonna like, I mean, it's like your number one draft pick opportunity, right? You're gonna pick one, You're gonna pick a group of people who are just marked by their stability, by their incredible wisdom and decision-making. This is going to be a family that has it all together. This is gonna be a family that makes all the right decisions. Even when adversity is facing them and they're in tight spots, they're gonna do the right thing the vast majority of the time. That's what you would think. And you find out really quickly, nope, not the story at all. These are messy people whose lives are honestly defined by brokenness. If you read the second half of the book of Genesis, it's like just reading more family drama than you can handle. And if you're ever feeling guilty about the family drama in your life or you're stressed out about the family drama in your life, just read the second half of Genesis and be like, God, thank you that that's not my family. Because I'm not saying that some of us couldn't compete. I'm just saying that most of us would have a really hard time making a case about us having more drama in our family than we see in this family. This is a series of broken homes, but it reminds us of a few very important things. Number one, it reminds us of how special scripture is. The Bible's so amazing. And it's amazing for a variety of reasons. One of those reasons is the Bible doesn't lie. Because the stories that it records of of the people that we would consider the heroes of the Bible, they're just stories that should never have made the cut. If the purpose of the Bible was to try to to put its best foot forward and try to present some some very beautiful image of of what life ought to be like. We see this in our world all the time. So many people who are celebrities or leaders, there's this veneer of perfection. They live these very manicured lives and what they allow to be known by everyone is very small and it's very, very purposeful. And if you read their autobiographies, you don't read about the messy parts of life unless it's the messy parts of life that make them look like heroes. Then you open up the Bible and it's like, whoa, too much information. I did not need to know that. I really didn't. Why in the world would those stories make it into scripture? Why would they have allowed that to happen? And the reality is God wants us to know the truth. He doesn't lie to us. He doesn't whitewash anything. He tells us the truth, even sometimes the ugly truth. And so when we read scripture and we read these stories of failure and struggle and scandal, it gives us a tremendous amount of trust that what we're reading is accurate and true because this is, this is humanity on display. 
It also reminds us that God uses broken people. The Bible is not the story of amazing men and women doing incredible things for God. It's the story of really messed up people, broken people with all kinds of issues who have this incredible God whose power and love and patience is more than all of our mistakes combined and he uses broken people to do his work in this world. So if your life feels messy, if you're ever able to say, hey, I'm kind of a broken person, good news, you are useful to God because he uses broken people. It's important for me to remember that because I don't have it all together, not even close. But these stories, especially these stories in the second half of Genesis, they also do something else really helpful for us. Because as they display all these messy parts of these people's lives, as they record and and tell us about all the, the messed up stuff that goes on in these broken home families, they also allow us to see these qualities that that rise to the surface and have the ability to actually compensate for all the brokenness in some pretty amazing ways. These qualities that we as people can also have in our lives that allow us to sort of rise above our own mess. And so we can learn from these people broken as they are. Now, last Sunday, we looked at at Abram, who has his name changed by God to Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish nation. That nation eventually becomes known as Israel. And Israel is the the name given to to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, about halfway into his life. He gets renamed Israel. We're gonna learn about that this morning. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Esau and another son named Jacob. And Jacob's gonna be our focus today. Isaac's life is, is is pretty chill. In fact, in his family, among all his descendants, Isaac probably has the most like stable life. There's drama with his children, but Isaac isn't really at the root of most of that as far as we can tell. So Isaac's doing okay, but Jacob, oh my goodness, when we get to Jacob. Are you guys familiar with the phrase, hold my beer? Like how many of you, do a quick show of hands, you know that phrase, hold my beer. Okay, not everybody does. Let me, this is a phrase that's become popular in the last 10 years. And the idea of it is simple. It started off with a comedian. I tried to find like the root of this phrase this week. Uh, Apparently there was a comedian who made a joke about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, saying there's never been a good decision followed by the words, hold my beer. You know, the idea someone's been drinking and, and they look at their buddy and after they've, they've had a few and their, their judgment's impaired, they say, hey, hold my beer. And then they go to do something or say something and like, that's gonna be bad. And over time, it's become a phrase with like internet meme culture and Twitter and things like that, where if someone says, hold my beer, it basically means watch me outdo your stupidity. It's like, oh, you think that was bad? Hold my beer, you know? Think like the Atlanta Falcons at halftime of the Super Bowl a few years ago where it's like, hey, too soon. I know, I'm sorry, too soon. Oh man, I'm from Missouri and the Chiefs just won, but I want you guys to know, I actually, like I'm fully invested here. I've lived here for about 20 years. And so I don't even consider myself a Chiefs fan. Like I'm here. I felt the pain of that more than I felt the joy of the Chiefs winning. So I'm not making fun of the Falcons. We're all in this misery together, okay? We're all in this together. So but it's this idea, like hold my beer. I'm about to, to outdo your stupidity. And if you read Jacob's story in the Bible, it's basically like he's trying to play the ultimate game of hold my beer with his life. Because every story you read about this guy is just one bad decision, one manipulative moment after another, one moment of poor character, one moment of just outright deception and lies. It's like he's trying to do his best to do his worst. And it kind of starts right off the bat. And so let's start to look at at the broken home of, of Jacob's life. 
Here we go. I may have said Joseph a second ago. I think I might have. If I did, Joseph's another. There's a lot of J names. So just, sometimes you guys call me Jason. My name's Justin. I'm fine with it. We're fine with it too, okay? So Genesis chapter 25. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer and Rebecca became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb, so she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me? She asked, and the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. It's interesting. So they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when his twins were born. Now, Jacob, the the name in Hebrew means deceiver or usurper or supplanter. And and so basically they're like, oh, he's grabbing his older brother's heel. It's almost like he's saying, no, I want to be first because in their culture, the first got everything. He's like, I want to be first. I want to win. And from the very beginning of his life, it's like he's grasping for something that doesn't rightly belong to him. So they name him Deceiver, which may have not been a good idea. Because if your name is Deceiver, you can't really get mad when that person deceives. Like, it's what you named me. It's just what I do. And we see this right away as soon as we start reading about moments in Jacob's life. So, for example, Genesis chapter 25. It says, once when Jacob was cooking some stew... Esau came in from the open country famished. And the reality is Esau's probably literally starving. Like it's not, this is an ancient culture. We're talking 3,000 years ago. There's no refrigeration. There's no fast food restaurants. If you went out into the open field, if you went to hunt and you didn't have a, a good hunt, you were just hungry, starving. He probably hasn't eaten in who knows how long. So he says to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And this is why he was called Edom. Edom means red. And so anyway, Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. His brother is starving in front of him. He's like, oh, you want some some of this stew? Mmm, smells good. I'd love to give you some. Just why don't you go ahead and, and trade me this for your birthright, which would mean the inheritance that he is allotted as the firstborn by his father. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank Then he got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. So you can look at Esau and judge him here. Hey man, you should have cared more about your inheritance than that. But at the same time, it's really hard to read this story and feel good about Jacob. Your your brother is starving. You have food. He asks you for some and you're like, not before you give me what doesn't belong to me. That's just sort of Jacob's nature. And as we're gonna learn, Jacob is just the worst. Like he's the worst. I'm gonna go ahead and say it. For most of my life, I just decided that Jacob is the worst character in the scriptures. He's just, it's impossible to find something redeeming about this man, or so I thought. But you're gonna see why I grew up thinking this. Let's go to Genesis chapter 27. When his father, Isaac, um, was old, he went to his father and said, sorry, let me go back. I lost my place. Here we go. He went to his father and said, my father, yes, my son. Oh, I remember why this starts that way. I was supposed to set that part up. So let's rewind and act like I did it right. Okay. So here's the deal. Isaac, Isaac, there's so many stories here. I was trying to condense it as much as I could because we got to get through a lot. So Isaac is old. And, and as he got older, he, he loses his sight. He's blind, can't see. And so 
Isaac decides, you know what, I'm probably gonna die soon. I need to bring my boys in and I need to, to bless them. And the main one he would bless would be Esau. So as the firstborn, Esau had two things coming to him. His birthright, the inheritance, all the stuff, all the livestock and all of that. But number two, which in their culture was, was really even more important was the blessing. Because they believed that when someone blessed you, when someone with authority blessed you, your father spoke a blessing over you, that that was not just like a nice, well-intended, encouraging set of words, like, oh, thanks, that made me feel good, that that was speaking something into existence, that those words would stay with you the rest of your life. And we might look at that and think it's superstitious and silly, but think about how often, if you look at your past, someone's words shaped your future either for the good or for the bad. Someone's word, something that someone spoke over you stuck with you for years and years and years and maybe it was discouraging and maybe it was something that you had to fight to get over or maybe it gave you a different perspective on life and, and those words lifted you a little bit higher. They believe that to an even greater degree. So this blessing is a big deal and Isaac's like, bring in my oldest Esau, I want to bless him. And he tells Esau, why don't you go and, and hunt? Esau was a great hunter. Hunt some wild game. Make me my favorite dish. Bring it to me, and then we'll do this. And while, while Esau is out doing that, Jacob and his mom come up with this idea to steal the blessing from Esau. He's like, look, your, your father's blind, Rebecca says, so why don't you uh, put some of your brother's clothes on? And he's really hairy, so they even put some like animal hair on, on his, his hands and like, his neck. And like, Esau was apparently very hairy. And, you know, anyone who's a little brother can probably do a decent impression of your older brother if you, if you had to. And so basically, why don't you go and just lie to your dad, say that you're Esau, and he'll bless you, thinking that you're Esau, but then you'll have the blessing. This is horrible. And Jacob doesn't really fight it. So here we go. This is what I was supposed to say now. He went to his father and said, my father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And Isaac asked his son, well, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success. Oh my goodness. Now he's actually using God in his deception. This is horrible. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went close to his father who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him for his hands were very hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. And again, just imagine being Jacob in this moment. You've lied. You've got to feel some tinge of, of guilt. And now you've got this one final opportunity to just go, nah, I'm just playing. Prank, you know, kind of thing. But no, he, he doubles down. He says, I am. And he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought him some wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, just imagine being Isaac and you think you're saying these words. They're so powerful. They're so sincere. And you think you're giving this to your, your oldest, not knowing that you're being completely deceived. It's heartbreaking. Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, ah, oh, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's riches an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. May the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, my father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn Esau. 
Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you and, and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. And see, in their world, you couldn't even like take it back. It's already been spoken. It's already been said. It's out there. It's done. So now Esau doesn't get his father's blessing. This angers Esau. And in verse 41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near and then I will kill my brother Esau, my brother Jacob. So Esau says, because of what you've done, you've stolen my birthright. You've stolen my blessing. You're a liar. You're a deceiver. You're the worst little brother ever. And there's a, a tough competition for that. Like we've all, we've, how many of you have brothers? Just out of curiosity, you've got some brothers. Like you've done some, you've probably done some things to your brothers that you're not proud of. The worst thing I ever did to my little brother was convince him that he had killed me um, when he was about four years old. And so I know, I'm, I'm being honest. He stabbed me in the leg with a pushpin. Like fully, like just a pushpin in a wall. He grabbed on where he got the pushpin. He grabbed it, stabbed me in the leg and it stuck and it hurt. And I said, ow. And then I just sort of proceeded to use it as an opportunity to traumatize him for the rest of his life. And I like acted faint and I fell down and pretended to die. And I have a distinct memory of my three, four-year-old little brother shaking me with my eyes closed going, Justin, Justin. And then he starts weeping and crying. And I was like, aha, you know. And, you know, I, he'll tell you to this day, he's never used a pushpin since. He can't do it. If you hand him a pushpin to hang something on a, on like a, on a bulletin board, he's like, nope, not doing it. But that's like the worst thing I've done to my, my brother, as far as I can, can think. That doesn't even begin to compare to what Jacob does to Esau. And so Esau wants to kill him, but could you blame him? And so this just begins the family drama that you can't even imagine. So it gets worse. So Jacob leaves, he runs away because Esau's gonna kill him as soon as his father dies. And, and out of respect for his father, Esau's not gonna do it till then. Jacob goes, and while he's gone, he meets this girl named Rachel and he falls in love with her falls in love with her, works out a deal with her father to, to marry her. But then, like as happens sometimes, he accidentally marries her older sister, you know? Because that's just, who hasn't done that, you know? Oops. <laughs> and actually, it's kind of an interesting story because it turns out that the father-in-law of the women that he ends up marrying is just as deceptive as he is, so he kind of gets what's coming to him. And so he marries this girl named Leah, but then he's like, I want to marry Rachel too. And in that time, in that part of the world, in that culture, marrying multiple people was a thing. And so he marries Rachel. And then he's like, two women is not enough for me. So he also marries each of their servants. He's got four wives, ends up having 12 sons and one daughter from four different women, which is just a perfect recipe for family bliss. You know, 12 boys, one girl, four different moms. What could possibly go wrong? Remember, his life's motto is hold my beer. It's like he's trying to make it as bad as possible and he's doing a great job. So this creates all kinds of strife in his family because not only does he, he have four wives and 12 boys and one girl, he plays favorites. Like he loves Rachel way more than his other wives. He makes that very clear. He loves the children that Rachel has more than the others. He makes that very clear. He only has two boys with Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. And so when Joseph's young, he, he makes Joseph this amazing coat, the coat of many colors. You may have heard that story. And basically, it would be like a luxury item. And he gives it to Joseph, not to all of his boys. He doesn't say, hey, boys, I've got something for all of you. He distinguishes Joseph, even though Joseph is nowhere near the top of the birth order. He distinguishes Joseph and makes it very clear to all of his sons, this one's my favorite. I like him more than you. And I'm not even exaggerating. He, just, he does that. 
So this creates all kinds of jealousy in his family and the older sons decide, you know what, we, we, should, kill Jake. we should kill Joseph. We should kill him because he's annoying, he drives us crazy, his father, our father, loves him so much more than us. Let's get rid of him, let's kill him, and then we'll be rid of all this pain. That's how broken this family is. And so they almost go through with killing Joseph. They decide at the very last minute, you know what, let's not kill him, that's a little extreme. Let's just sell him as a slave to Egypt, we'll make some money, and then we'll just tell our father that he's dead by showing him that beautiful coat covered in blood and torn to pieces. So they do that. They sell Joseph as a slave to Egypt. Joseph ends up rising through the ranks of Egypt, goes from being a slave all the way to being second in command in the nation of Egypt. That's an amazing story for another day. But it doesn't do any good for their family because now they have Jacob, their father, who's, who's a mess. And he mourns for his son, Joseph. And instead of, of reflecting on it and saying, well, you know what? At least I've got all these other boys and it's time for me to show my love to them as well. He's like, at least I still have one more from Rachel, Benjamin. And he just takes all the favoritism he had for Joseph. Now he pours it all on Benjamin. The older brother's lives are no better and now they have to carry this guilt. It's just brokenness. I mean, we're talking broken home like we can't even imagine. So years go by, years go by and, and Joseph has risen through the ranks in Egypt but his brothers have no idea. As far as they know, he's probably just dead. Like that's something that happened to slaves in that time period very often. They, they have no contact with him. There's a huge famine in their land. So all the older brothers, except for Benjamin, go to Egypt to try to get some food because Egypt has food because of Joseph's amazing leadership. They see Joseph, he's in charge of the food distribution, but they don't recognize him because he's gotten a lot older. He's dressed like an Egyptian. They, why would they even think to look for him there? He recognizes them and he, he tries to test them. He recognizes that Benjamin isn't with them. And as far as Joseph's concerned, maybe they just got rid of Benjamin like they got rid of him. So he asks, hey, do you have any other siblings? Tell me about your family. They mentioned Benjamin and he says, I'll tell you what, I will bring food to you. I will give you food as long as you bring Benjamin to me to prove to me that you're telling the truth because I suspect you of being spies in this land. And they're like, no, 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 no. Our father would never let Benjamin come with us. He, he loves Benjamin so much. And Joseph, again, playing this charade says, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take one of you. He takes an older brother, Simeon. He throws him in jail he says, tell your father that I will not release this one unless you bring this younger brother, Benjamin, to me. And so they end up going back and they tell, they tell their father, Jacob, about this. Genesis chapter 42, when the brothers came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, they told him everything that had happened to them. The man who was governor of the land spoke very harshly to us, they told him. He accused us of being spies, scouting the land, but we said, we're honest men, not spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of one father, one brother is no longer with us and the youngest is at home with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man who was the governor of the land told us, this is how I will find out if you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take the grain for your starving families and go on home. But you must bring your youngest brother back to me and then I will know that you are honest men and not spies. Then I will give you back your brother and you may trade freely in the land. In Genesis chapter 42, verse 38, Jacob replied, my son will not go down with you. His brother Joseph is dead he is all I have left. Imagine being these older brothers. Benjamin is all I have left. I don't care about you. Oh, if anything should happen to him on your journey, you would send this grieving white-haired man to his grave. He basically says, let Simeon die. I can handle that. But if I lost Benjamin, I would never survive. Again, Jacob 
He's just sort of the worst. And here's the crazy thing. Jacob ends up having his name changed to Israel. And he becomes the namesake of God's people. Like Abraham, when we read his story last week, you know, Abraham had some missteps, but right from the beginning of his story, you saw something redeeming in Abraham. He was a man of faith. God speaks to him and says, go, leave your country, follow me. And right away, Abraham's like, I'm gonna go. And then as he goes, he makes some major mistakes and blunders, but at least he, he responded with faith. At least we see that right off the bat in his story. We don't see anything redeeming in Jacob's story. He's a bad brother, he's a bad son, he's a bad husband, he's a bad father. Every time he has a chance to do the right thing, he doesn't. Every time he has a chance to do something selfish on his own behalf, he does. And he ends up being the one that God chooses to name his entire nation after. They're not the Abramites, they're the Israelites. They're named after this guy, why? Again, I'm just being honest. I grew up from fourth grade on going to church. I read these stories. I always liked the stories in Genesis, but I just was like, as I got older, Jacob is the worst. What is there of redeeming quality in this man at all? And a few years ago, maybe three or four years ago, I heard a message from a pastor that I've listened to since I was in college. And he talked about Jacob in a way I'd never heard him talked about before. And it started to shift my perspective. Now he's still the worst. Okay, but there was this moment in his life that I'd never really fully thought about. And it happens to be the very moment that he has his name changed. And so here's some setup. This is after he's got his four wives and his 12 sons and his one daughter, but it's before all the stuff with Joseph happens. Okay, so it's in between. And he decides to leave the land that he's been staying in for years, hiding from his brother Esau and go back home to, to where he's from. But that means he's got to go back to Esau. And the last time he saw Esau, Esau was like, I'm gonna kill you. So he's a little nervous. So he decides to send a bunch of, of gifts ahead, you know, maybe so much that it would even be more than the birthright that, that he stole from his brother. Like he sends all these gifts ahead. And then he gets word from his servants that, hey, Esau received the gifts and now he's coming to meet you with 400 men. And Joseph is like, well, that can't be good. Or Jacob, I keep doing that. Just, you guys are good, you'll, you'll get it. Jacob says, this can't be good. This can't be good. And so he does a very Jacob thing. He doesn't decide, you know what, I'm gonna go out in front of my family. I'm gonna meet my brother face to face. I'm gonna take care of this. I'm gonna do this. He's like, all right, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna divide my family into two groups, all right? I'm gonna send one group out first. Probably put his least favorite people in that group. He's like, because if something happens to them, the others will get away. So at least I'll, I'll only lose half my family. It's a very Jacob thing. And he's like, and then I'll hang back. I'll be the last one. That way I can see how, how things go and adjust from there. I mean, again, come on, he is the worst. And while he's hanging back, he sent half of his family, the other half of his family. We have this crazy story. And it honestly has become one of my absolute favorite stories. This is probably the story I've spent the most time thinking about, reflecting on in the last three or four years of, of my journey of faith. It's in Genesis chapter 32. It says, this left Jacob all alone in the camp. And a man came, just out of nowhere, and a man shows up and wrestled with him until dawn began to break. How strange. 
You know, Jacob's like, I just want to hang back. Maybe he's going to pray. You know, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, even though I don't think he deserves it. Maybe he's going to pray and say, you know, I'm just going to pray that God, and he's like, all right, here we go. And then a man shows up, and they're like in the desert. This random guy just shows up and wrestles with him all night long. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. And then the man said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. And Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel. He was limping because of the injury to his hip. So this man that shows up is not any ordinary man. This is, this is God in flesh. We actually see this ultimately with Jesus, but even in the Old Testament, there are a few times where God shows up in physical form on the earth. And this is one of those times. And so Jacob somehow realizes, I would imagine if you were wrestling with God, you would realize it pretty quick. This is not just a normal man. I've never seen moves like this before, right? I don't know how you would know, but you would maybe know. Jacob recognizes this. I'm not wrestling with just some dude. I'm wrestling with, with God and I will not let go. And, and God says to him, let, let me go. It's been long enough. You've wrestled with me long enough. Let me go. And he says, no, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so God says, cool, wrenches his, his hip out of socket and changes his name to Israel, which means to wrestle with God. And this becomes the namesake of God's people, to wrestle with God. Not to follow God, not to honor God, not to love God, not to obey God, not to worship God, to wrestle with God. That is what God decides to name his people, the ones who wrestle with me. I was listening to this pastor years ago that I was talking about. And he said, you know, for all of Jacob's stuff, and again, he's the worst. You have to give Jacob credit for this one thing. He was a man who would rather die holding on to God than to have lived knowing he had let go of him. Jacob refused to let go of God even though there was tension and there was pain. And apparently that was so meaningful to God that even amidst all of Jacob's mess, stuff, sin, brokenness, God says, I will bless you because you have wrestled with me. God appreciates those who grapple with him, who wrestle with him. So much so that this becomes the namesake of his people. This one quality in Jacob that we see that, that we can learn from is that he is a wrestler. Abraham, his grandfather, was a believer. Jacob was a, a wrestler, and God apparently really, really likes that. This is where I find this so interesting, and I've taught on this once before. It's, again, become one of my favorite things to think about. The idea of wrestling with God. 
I don't know if you've ever wrestled before. I have two brothers, so I, I have. Not by choice all the time, but, but I have. I have three boys at home and there's lots of wrestling and sometimes Lily even jumps in and sometimes Lily jumps in and, and, and makes sure they know, hey, I am not to be messed with. Wrestling is not enjoyable. It's not a leisurely activity. Wrestling is all about discomfort and tension. If you ever watch real wrestling, like the whole point of it is to get someone in a position of such pain, such discomfort, there's so much tension that they tap out, that they say, I'm done, I quit. There's not many sports like that. Most sports have points, you know, and, you, and wrestling does too, but, but there's very few sports where you, you can win just by your opponent being like, I don't wanna do this anymore. You don't really see that happen in football. There's never been a football game I've watched where in like the third quarter, the team's like, we're out. This is horrible. We just, we're, we just wanna go home. We quit, we tap out. Wrestling is all about pain and tension. And in our world, we very often live dedicated to eliminating as much pain and tension as possible. We, we often live, we live in a culture at least that values comfort. We wanna be comfortable. I listened to a talk a few years ago at a conference and this guy gave an amazing, amazing talk about, about five questions that we should all live our lives by. And the idea was that the questions would rank up in terms of how meaningful they were. And if you lived by the, the top few questions, if those were what guided your thoughts, you would live a very focused, determined life. But his point was that most people only live thinking about the bottom two. And the very bottom question, the one that was at, at the very base level, the one that he said, we gotta get past this one, but most people never do. The, the question was, how do I make the pain stop? He said, that's the question most people are living their life trying to, to solve. How do I make the pain stop? And, and sometimes there are things in our lives that are so painful that we, we need to figure it out. We need healing. We need to, to get counseling, maybe. We need to address something. We need to get physically healthy. We need to deal with a, a problem. But his point was that if the only thing we ever try to do in life is eliminate tension and pain, we will never become the people that we're meant to be. And when it comes to God, when it comes to being people of faith, and this is where I think this is so important, this is so vital for us to understand, we have to realize that the tension that we experience with God is not a bug in the system, it's a feature. Because we're meant to wrestle with God. Following Jesus is amazing. And it, it, it has all these benefits that I could just stand here forever and list. There's peace and there's joy, there, there's love and, and there's so much, but there's also tension. And he actually promised that. Like if you look at the promises of Jesus, anyone who wants to be my disciple, must take up their cross, deny themselves and follow me. That's not like, woo. That's a, that's a, a promise of, of tension and pain and suffering. Jesus actually promised that if we follow him, at many different times, the world around us would hate us. That's, that's tension. There's all kinds of tension that we experience in our relationship with God. There's the tension of, of having values. If we're trying our best to follow Jesus and live our life by what he's called us to live by, by what scripture teaches, there's the tension of having values different than the world around us. There's the tension of knowing that your views on certain things are just going to be very different than the views of many other people. And sometimes you find yourself in a room and you're like, well, I know that I think very differently than these people. My stances on all kinds of issues might be very different than them and we have to sort of navigate that tension. And that's not always, that's not always fun. There's tension. 
There's, there's tension sometimes being a Jesus follower because life doesn't go the way maybe we think it ought to. And, and we follow Jesus, we love Jesus, we pray and we, we worship him, we're faithful servants. And then something happens in our lives and it throws us for a loop. There's a diagnosis, there's a tragedy, there's loss, there's deep, deep disappointment. And we have to go, hey God, where were you on that one? Because I don't feel like you're here. I don't feel like you're listening. I don't feel like you're, you're blessing me. I don't feel like you're, you're living up to your end of the deal. And that's tension that we have to fight through. Sometimes there's just the tension of unanswered prayers, things that we have gotten on our knees about and we have prayed about and we've worked for and it hasn't happened. It hasn't gone the way that we wanted it to go and we have to go, God, why? And that's tension. Jesus dealt with that. Look at the prayer that Jesus has in the garden before he gets he gets arrested and taken to the cross. He's like, God, if there's any way to take this, this cup of wrath away from me, please do it. And there's tension there with Jesus, so much so that it says he's sweating blood. Like, I don't even know what that kind of tension is like. And Jesus has tension in his relationship with God the Father, but he ultimately relents and says, your will, not mine. Sometimes there's just the tension of having the Holy Spirit inside of us. You know, when you give your life to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and that in many ways is just amazing and unbelievable because the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Self-control comes last. That's a real encouragement to me. I'm grateful for that. You know, I'm gonna get it eventually. It's just, it's the last one. But no, you have all those things in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit also creates tension because you have this other part of you, that original part of you, we often call that the flesh. That's what the New Testament calls it. Those desires and urges that we have naturally, they don't come from God, they just come from, from us. And, and the spirit and the flesh are like at war with each other. Scripture talks about this a lot. Paul wrote a lot about this if you read his letters in the New Testament. And there's tension because there's all kinds of things that I sometimes want to do, but there's this tension inside of me where the spirit is like, no, there are so many things I would have said to people over the years if not for the Holy Spirit. But it's not like one of those moments where I'm like, oh, I want, to, I want to give this person a piece of my mind. I want to let them know how wrong they are, how wrong they were. But yeah, I just love them so much and forgive them. It's fine. I wish it was like that. But a lot of the times it's like, oh man, I want to say this. I feel justified. I feel right. I want to do this. I want to retaliate. I want to let them know what I think. But the Holy Spirit inside of me is like holding me back. You know, like a middle school boy in a fight. Like, nope, nope. And I'm like, no, let me do it. Let me do it. Spirit, let me do it. And he's like, uh-uh, no, no, calm down. Self-control. Like, again, it's the last one, but I'm working on it. But I'm serious. There's a tension sometimes where my flesh wants to do things and my spirit is fighting that. And so I just want you to know that being a Jesus follower is amazing. It's awesome. Maybe I'm doing a horrible job selling this to those of you who haven't decided to follow Jesus, but I'm not trying to sell it. That's the truth. Jesus doesn't need to be sold because being a Jesus follower is amazing. It is powerful, but there is tension. And the tension is not a bug in the system. It is a feature. It is purposeful because the tension allows us to wrestle with God. We live right now in a time in church culture in large, I don't talk about this too often, but it's important, where there's a serious attempt right now, at least in kind of Western church culture, to eliminate the tension. And so you might look at something like, I'm just being really direct, like scripture's teachings about human sexuality. Those teachings are very much at tension with the values that our world has related to sexuality. And so there's a big movement in many churches say, you know what, let's just sort of distance ourselves from these teachings because then we can, we can eliminate that tension and that will be better. 
there's, there's been a big movement to try to distance the church from really most of the Old Testament because there's stuff in the Old Testament that you're like, I wish that wasn't in there. This doesn't play well with sort of the modern sensibilities of our world. So if we just distance ourselves from, from that, we can eliminate the tension. There's been a big push in the last decade, 20 years, to, to really distance ourselves from ideas like God's judgment, maybe even hell, even though those are clearly taught in Scripture. Because how does that reconcile with, with the love of God? Well, it does, but there's tension there. You gotta wrestle with God to figure that out. So there's this push, let's distance ourselves from these uncomfortable ideas because that will eliminate the tension. But the problem is if you eliminate the tension, you eliminate one of the most important features in following God, which is the wrestling with God part of it all. Because if you wrestle with God and you hold on to God and you don't let go of God, you become stronger, you become mature, you change. There's no such thing as transformation without tension. It doesn't exist. The tension is not a bug that we need to eliminate. It is a feature that we need to grapple with. And this is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. This is not about a, a life hack or a quick fix. This is not something where it's like, hey, just do this simple thing and tomorrow your life will be way better. The reality is, the greatest blessing that God can give is for those who are willing to wrestle with him their entire lives, refusing to let go. There is a, a kind of blessing that you can experience only as someone who has gone through it with God. And so the cool thing is if you're going through it right now, if like life isn't going the way that you want it to go and there's major areas of life that you're really frustrated with, it's not because you're failing and it's not because God is failing you. It might actually be one of the most important seasons of your life and your challenge is just to not let go of God right now. You can be angry with God. You can be confused by God. You can be disappointed with God. You can, you can hold on to God and wrestle with him and fight with him, but do not let go of him. Because if you hold on to him and you just deal with that tension, you will come out the other side transformed. For all of his, his issues and mess, Jacob was a different person when he finished wrestling with God. He had a new name, a better name. Wrestle with God is better than deceiver. I think we can all agree. I had a friend and worship team, you guys can make your way out. I had a friend that I was talking about this with about a year ago. And he said, you know, it's interesting that Jacob limped for the rest of his life after this, because I guess, A, you never really win if you wrestle with God. Like, God's strong. But he says, isn't it interesting, and he was being metaphoric, but I thought it was really powerful. He said, isn't it interesting that after he wrestled with God, Jacob never walked the same? I wish I could take credit for that one. I was like, dang it, that's perfect. Well, my friend said it. But he's a man who's wrestled with God, I will tell you that. He's a man who, who I look up to and respect and he's gone through some things and he's had seasons and struggles, but he's a man who's held on to God the whole time. If you wrestle with God, you'll never walk the same. You'll be different. What would happen if we did not desire ease and comfort? I mean, look, I, I, like comfort, I like comfort as much as anybody. 
Like when I buy a pair of shoes, my favorite thing is the cushion because I want to be comfortable. But when it comes to faith, when it comes to our relationship with God, what if, what if we could set comfort aside and embrace tension? Romans chapter eight, verses 15 through 17 say, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God and of children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And up to this point, we're all like, yeah. And everyone always stops that verse. It's a very popular verse. Everyone always stops right there. But it says, heirs with him, with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. Mm. Again, I wish that wasn't there so that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, that glorification, that transformation, it happens in suffering. It happens in tension. And so church, family, like friends, like what if we were people who were willing to wrestle with God? What if we made it our life's purpose to just simply never let go of God? That no matter what happens to us, no matter what curveballs come our way, no matter what tragedies, what confusing moments, what hardships, what struggles we face, we just said in our hearts, you know what? I'm sure I'm gonna go through it. I probably won't go through it perfectly. I will make mistakes, but one thing I will never do is I will never let go of my God. No matter how hard it is, no matter the tension. Because the tension is a feature. And for those who refuse to let go, there's transformation, there's change. And so this is, this is what it's about. Will we be people who say, I will, I will not run away from the tension. I will not eliminate it. I will not change the way that I believe God and think about God so that I can create some type of tension-free faith because that faith is not genuine. I will be a wrestler. Any wrestlers in the room? I'm gonna be a wrestler. And I'm not gonna tap out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for, mm, thank you, Lord, for being willing to wrestle with us. Lord, you are amazing. You are powerful. There's no one like you. But there are aspects about you, God, that we don't understand. Sometimes your plan is so mysterious to us. It, it honestly doesn't always make sense. Sometimes, Lord, it feels like things happen. And, and Lord, from our, our perspective, it can even seem like you're asleep at the wheel. Like you're not doing what you ought to be doing. That's part of our nature as, as human beings. We think that way sometimes, Lord. We struggle to understand. We struggle to make sense of, of how to respond to you. But help us remember that the struggle is okay. In fact, sometimes, Lord, the struggle is the point that you're okay with our struggling. So long as we struggle with you. We can wrestle with you. Give us the, the strength, Lord, the resilience to just never, ever let go. And encourage us, Lord, right now that if we're going through hardship, if we're struggling, if we wouldn't necessarily be able to say, oh, I'm the best I've ever been. I'm just, I'm killing it right now. If we couldn't say that, Lord, that's okay because that's not what you ask. You don't ask us to be perfect. You don't ask us to be successful in every sphere of life at all times, but you just simply ask us to grab a hold of you and refuse to let go. Help us be people who do that, trusting that you will bless us in ways we can't even imagine if we do so. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.